flat top he come Grooving up slowly he got Juju eyeball he wants Holy roller he got hair Down to his knee Got to be a joker He just do what he please This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories And you're listening to Robin Williams with Bobby McFerrin. And Robin Williams could do it all. And not many people can do it all. He could act. He could make you laugh. He could do voiceovers. And he could sing. And on this day in history, tragically, Robin Williams died. And we love to tell stories on our American stories and this is a heck of a story. Come together right now over me. Robin Williams was an American stand-up. That's where it started. By the way, my sister was a house singer at Catch a Rising Star when Robin's, Robin was coming up. And before I even begin, I can tell you this about the guy. He was so graceful to everybody. Whatever troubles he had, and he had them, he didn't take them out on other people. Because my sister was around a lot of other troubled comics who were mean and nasty and hit on her. And Robin was beautiful. And he treated everybody beautifully, except himself. And with that, stand-up actor, comedian, director, producer, writer, singer, and voice artist who throughout the course of his career won numerous awards, including an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role in Goodwill Hunting. He also won six Golden Globes, including Best Actor, Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy for his roles in Good Morning Vietnam, The Fisher King, Mrs. Doubtfire, along with the Cecil B. DeMille Award in 2005. Robin was born at St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago, Illinois, on July 21, 1951. His father, Robert Fitzgerald Williams, was a senior executive in Ford Motor Company's Lincoln Mercury Division. His mother, Lori McLaren, was a former model from Jackson, Mississippi, not far from here where we broadcast. Her great-grandfather was a Mississippi senator and governor. Williams attended public elementary school and middle school in Lake Forest, Illinois. He described himself as a quiet and shy child who did not overcome his shyness until he became involved with his high school drama department. By the way, we heard this over and over again. Our Hour with Al Pacino. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to that. And Johnny Carson. Until he started playing with magic and becoming a magician, he was just real shy. Williams' friends recall him being very funny. In late 1963, when Williams was 12, his father was transferred to Detroit. They lived in a 40-room farmhouse on 20 acres in suburban Bloomfield, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Here, Robin Williams talks about his earliest memory of living in that farmhouse and his dog named Duke. Living in Michigan in this huge house that my father and mother had rented, and it was living pretty much, you know, alone there, you know, hanging out. And we had a wonderful dog named Duke who eventually bit this girl who came, didn't knock on the door, but just came in. But he used to play hide-and-seek with me. That I remember now. But he was like a friend. He was great. He was this big dog. And I would hide, and then he would come find me, and then I would tell him to hide. And then, you know, like with a dog, he would go behind a chair, and if he couldn't see, he thought he was hidden. But sweet dog, big, big dog, big hunting dog. As William's father was away much of the time, 
and his mother also worked. He was attended to by the family's maid, who was his main companion. William says he was alone a lot. I had the attic to myself, which supposedly the black maid thought was haunted. There's hates there, Mr. Williams. And that, you know, I had that place and I set up my train set, but had that pretty much to run up, you know, leaving that to, you know, all my toys and things up there. But it was pretty much just me. And occasionally she had a son that she would bring over and he would play with me, but it was alone a lot. No one else lived nearby. And it was pretty, uh, because my father was working in the automobile industry, you know, he was off and my mom was there, but pretty lonely. And you can hear it. And this is a unique interview that Jesse pulled up. Uh, with a, a psychiatrist and a psychologist. And you're going to hear a very different side of the Robin Williams you're used to hearing. We'll play some clips from his movie and his routines. We wanted to have you hear a different side of Robin Williams, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. We try and find things you wouldn't ordinarily find about people you know, but maybe didn't know well enough or wanted to know better. Here, Williams describes his mother as a funny, extremely competitive, and beautiful woman. I think she was happy that I, I was funny because she was funny. She used to do this, drive my father nuts. She would take a rubber band if you cut it, and then she would jam it up in her nose and be at a party in a very lovely evening gown and go, and this thing would come dangling out, and she'd go, oh, dear. My father would go, oh, Lori, please. My mother was a great tennis player, but we would compete against each other to the point where we would cheat <laughs> badly. And then I finally went, this is crazy. You know, even, you know, I was just... This is nuts. I gave up tennis because it was kind of strange that it was getting to that point. I remember when we lived in Chicago, she was always doing like fashion shows because I would see the articles later when I was older kid. I would look at them, oh, that's cool. She was like a model, like a runway model for these fashion shows. I see pictures of her, and then I saw some home movies of her that Marsha put together from that were, we found that my dad had, and we had transferred to tape. She looks like Ingrid Bergman. Gorgeous. Robin describes his father as a man whose voice could invoke great fear and discipline. He's a quiet man, but he could invoke fear pretty easily, but not in, never physical, never, you know, never hit. But he had a voice that I think I've inherited because I can scare children with it too, but it drops down like that when he got angry. And I was like, oh, oh. And that was very, it was almost like that movie The Shout with Alan Bates, where, you know, the voice could inflict great fear. And, you know, and discipline. But I, as I, it's a wonderful thing that I got to know him before he died. Because all of a sudden he went from being an archetype to a man. And being kind of sweet and vulnerable. And, you know, you'd see that they would go down and play and he, he would drink his two. <laughs> you'd have a couple of gin and tonics. And all of a sudden he'd be very kind of, do you need anything? What, you want anything? This is a car? No, I'm only 12. Okay. <laughs> this is Lee Habib. And you're hearing from Robin Williams. And on this day in history, we tragically learned that his life had come to an end at his own hand. Suicide. He hung himself. And my goodness, I don't think there are many of us who didn't shed a tear that day. Because he'd brought so much joy to us, and he had so much pain within him. More after this. Robin Williams, his life for the hour. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
Figaro, 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 this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We weren't kidding when we said Robin Williams could do it all. Listen to the joy. I'm just smiling, laughing, and he's not making fun of it. It's wonderful. When we left off, we had learned about Robin Williams' lonely childhood. And again, listen to that Al Pacino piece. Williams talks here about those early days alone up in that attic as a time that helped shape the actor and comedian that he would eventually become. Probably the weird thing is to think that thing of being up there developed a very vivid imagination that eventually it becomes kind of a thing that I employ deeply in acting and also improvising and playing and performing. And that connection to try and reach to my mother probably became this, the desire, the ability to perform, which is a weird, you know, wiring to begin with. But without that, if I, if she had been maybe, that would never have existed. I mean, I probably wouldn't be doing what I do. It's a weird kind of thing. And when you talk to people who had a tough life, but in the end it gave them all sorts of different tools and mechanisms that, you know, allowed them to be in this place they are now, it's kind of good news, bad news. But I, I, I can't literally remember it being that sad. And maybe that's a defense mechanism, but I can't. When Williams was 16, his father took early retirement and the family moved to Tiburon, California, Following the move, Williams attended Redwood High School in nearby Larkspur. At the time of his graduation in 1969, he was voted most likely not to succeed. And funniest by his classmates. Oops. Well, not oops on the funniest. After high school graduation, Williams enrolled at Claremont Men's College in Claremont, California to study political science. Williams was fluent in French and thought he could make a living as a translator but later dropped out, luckily for all of us, to pursue acting. Williams then studied theater for three years at the College of Marin, a community college in Kentfield, California. Here, Williams talks about how he took an improv class just to meet girls and how that led him to discover his favorite drug, making people laugh. I took a drama class just because it was an elective and it was certainly to break up the tedium of all that. I said, why did you take an acting class? To meet women. That was exactly it. And then in the process of taking that, it was like, wait a minute, this improv class was taught by this gorgeous woman who was only slightly older than we were. And I think that was another thing of like, oh, oh, oh if only. But then all of a sudden it was like this thing of, when we started doing shows, it was this thing of being able to use and improvise and, you know, and the laughter. It was the first time of getting the double bill of the theater combined with the reinforcement of laughter, the connection. When you, you know, the, you, people are laughing and laughing hard and, you know, and you're creating it. It was a, like, wait a minute, this is, this is a, something very, this is the hook, the drill, the drug. And by the way, you'll hear that from many rock and roll musicians. They picked up that guitar to meet girls. That's it. In 1973, Williams attained a full ride to the Juilliard School in New York City. He was one of only 20 students accepted into the freshman class and one of only two students to be accepted into the advanced program at the school that year. The other was Christopher Reeve. Here, Williams talks about leaving Juilliard and starting comedy workshops in order to feed off the reaction of an audience. He says laughter has an orgasmic intimacy. When I left Juilliard and couldn't find acting work, I started going to comedy workshops and started, you know, riffing. 
because it was an idea of kind of employing the idea of not having an improv group to work with and then just saying, okay, do it alone. And then go off on it and see what happens. And still looking for, and I still look, even as of two days ago when I was performing in Mill Valley, still looking for something to react off of while still exploring and performing. Still like making members of the audience or looking for stimulus that'll trigger something. There is an endorphin release with laughter and hardcore laughter is close to orgasmic for some people. And it, it, it certainly breaks barriers down and gets people kind of much more amendable to, you know, being, it is an intimacy. In some cases false or in some cases brief, but you do get a chance that people will say to me after that, I've never laughed so hard. It's like, well, oh, okay, great. And they'll be kind of burnt out like... Williams began his career doing stand-up comedy shows in the San Francisco Bay Area in the mid-1970s. His first performance took place at the Holy City Zoo, a comedy club in San Francisco, where he worked his way up from tending bar to getting on stage. From there, he moved to L.A. and continued doing stand-up shows at various clubs, including the Comedy Club in 1977, where TV producer George Schlatter, realizing that Williams would become an important force in show business, asked him to appear on Laughing. The show aired in late 1977 and became his debut TV appearance. Williams also performed a show at the L.A. Improv that same year for HBO that led Williams into a career in television, during which period he continued doing stand-up at comedy clubs such as the Roxy to help him keep his improvisational skills sharp. Here, Williams on stage at the Roxy in 1977 performs a routine called A Little Spark of Madness, where he acts out himself as an old man 40 years into the future. You, you young people don't remember the old times. Back past, past the turn of the century, I was there. Uh, do you remember World War Three? All 45 seconds of it, do you remember? <laughs> do you remember Carter's last words, too? It was, thank you very much, on your own, good night. <laughs> <laughs> and there was the great quake where we all surfed to Colorado. <laughs> that was some bitchin' disco time there. That, there's uh, some memories there, boy. Some great memories. And then there were all sorts of changes. Things went down. <laughs> you, from me to you, you got to be crazy. You know what I'm talking about? Full goose bozo. Because what is reality? <laughs> you see what I mean? You got to be crazy. It's too late to be sane. Too late. You got to go full tilt bozo. Because you're only given a little spark of madness. And if you lose that, you're nothing. Don't. From, from me to you. Don't ever lose that, because it keeps you alive. Because if you lose that, that's my only love. Crazy. Like I said, stand-up actor. Williams has credited other comedians having influenced and inspired him, including Jonathan Winters, Peter Sellers, Nichols and May, and that's Mike Nichols and Elaine May, and Lenny Bruce. Jonathan Winters became his idol early in life. Williams first saw him on television at age eight and paid him homage in interviews throughout his career. 
Williams was also influenced by Richard Pryor's fearless ability to talk about his personal life on stage, with subjects including his use of drugs and alcohol. And Williams added those kinds of topics during his own performances. Here's Williams in 1977 toasting and roasting Richard Pryor on television. I just want to say um, Richard's come a long way in 18 years. Uh, not funny, but true. Now, 18 years ago, they'd greet him in small time, town too. Mm. Let me take that back. Okay. Eighteen years ago, they'd greet him in small towns by tying a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Then they'd try and hang him with it. All I can say, though, is this man's a genius. Now, who else can take all the forms of comedy, slapstick, satire, mime, and stand-up, and turn it into something that'll offend everyone? No. But this man doesn't want any frills on his show. All he wants is a loose director, a tight script, and a warm place to rehearse. Williams was cast as the alien Mork in a 1978 episode of the hit TV series Happy Days. It changed everything. Williams impressed the producer with his quirky sense of humor when he sat on his head when asked to take a seat for the audition. As Mork, Williams improvised much of his dialogue and physical comedy. In this scene from Happy Days, Mork meets the Fonz. Hey, Ralph, if you're out there and this is a bad joke, I'll give you 30 seconds to find out how much I don't enjoy. Wee, wee, wee. Huh? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Greetings, Fonzie. Can you buy us a button, you Remember me, Mork from Ork? You once called me the nutso from outer space. I think I must be dreaming of something like that, you know? I mean, uh... Of course I'm dreaming. That's why Mary never heard of me. Sorry, real thing. I had to zap your mind to make you forget. Didn't want you to go, Bozo City. (laughs) And when we come back, we're going to get to that point in Robin's life when that rubber red ball on his nose comes off. Because there's so much more to this man, as we learned, than just the funny man. This is Lee Habib. The life of Robin Williams, he died on this day in history. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're hearing the soundtrack and the opening track to Mork and Mindy. And Mork's appearance was so popular with viewers that it led to the spin-off hit television sitcom Mork and Mindy, which ran from 1978 to 1982. Mork and Mindy at its peak had a weekly audience of 60 million viewers. Here's Williams talking about what it felt like to become a star overnight and how he began to abuse drugs and alcohol at around that same time. Fame, like Mark and Mindy fame, is insane. It is surreal, because all of a sudden you go from no one knowing you to everyone knowing you in a, in a rat second. You're on the cover of magazines. Mark and Mindy was on the cover of Time, because it was this kind of phenomenon. 
And it became this thing of, you know, all of a sudden, you go from being, if you think you can get attraction, you know, that you're somehow attracted, there is that, that fame as an aphrodisiac over, you know, all bets are off in terms of what life was like before. At that point, I was also drinking and doing drugs about after the first year. Because the first couple of years, it wasn't, I mean, I would never really, you know, didn't, couldn't afford it or, but when all of a sudden you're famous, you don't have to afford drugs. They give them to you in large quantities for two reasons. One, good for business. They can tell them, I got him high. And find out, you'll find out later on that that also is bad for your business when they get busted. Second thing is, it's, you know, it, it allows the control over you because you'll come back. You will come back. And Williams talks about drug use and how it became more of a problem once the Mark and Mindy show came to an end. I gravitated toward cocaine, and I realized later on that the only reason I gravitated towards it is it had a reverse metabolic effect on me, that I would get quiet and paranoid and impotent, which is, oh, God, what a great triple. That, that, and the idea you're doing it because you think you're doing it because you want to, you know, as an aphrodisiac, and it'll be great, and it worked the exact opposite. Literally, it was uh, doing it and then having the exact effect, and I find myself just looking out windows and being like this, very quiet and still, and people would assume it must have made you crazy. I went, no, the exact opposite. It became more intense after the series started to die off. And then it's that idea of kind of medicating yourself to the pain of, you know, this, you're not that famous anymore, or fame comes and goes. And it was going at that point. And so you're kind of, you know, trying to keep it going at a level, and you realize it's not the same. And you know, you're, and you're, plus you're pushing it, and it's being given to you on, in levels, and you're still going around trying to, you know, attract others and do all that other stuff, and it's changing. Well, not all success was bad for Williams. Here, he talks about finally being able to talk to his dad man to man, and how he lost the need to please everyone all the time. I'd supported myself to the point where, you know, and my father's sitting down with me in a very moving moment saying, take care of your mother when I'm gone. And being very, and he was like, he started to cry, and I realized, Pop, it's okay. Like, he couldn't do it anymore. I was talking to a man, and he was talking to a man. And that was very powerful, very moving, and very vulnerable, and very, in a way, you know, really life-changing. The other thing that's been interesting is to lose some of the desire to please over that, because either because of age, and you realize that there is, you know, it is almost like the Taoist thing of, you know, please everyone, please no one. That you have that thing of going, at what point do you understand who you are and what do you do? And then you it become less like, it just becomes less external on that level. And there may be more kind of, a little more at ease with what you are and who you are and go, this is what it is. Don't like it? Hey. Hey. And we're talking about Robin Williams today because on this day in history... And my goodness, it, it seems like yesterday. But on this day in history in 2014, Robin Williams committed suicide. Williams was asked what was the biggest misconception people had of him. Here's what he had to say. That I'm manic. That I'm just like manic and crazed and always to the point where a woman came up to me once in an airport and said, be zany. And it was like, I first didn't understand her and then it was like, you know, be zany. And it's like, oh, okay. I love performing. I love having a good time, especially with other comics. There's something very freeing about it, because I guess we're all kind of bound by the same animal. You know, that's just the old thing of like, you know, or people say, are you on now? I went, oh, no, I'm, I'm here right now. Well, what's wrong? Or people come and say, something wrong? I went, no, I'm all, my, oh, literally, the people say, can I take a picture of me? 
And I'll take a picture and I'm like this, and they'll say, smile. I'm going, I am. This isn't like, you know, a smile like they want the big kind of goofy, you know. And I'm, I'm feeling really good. I'm, I'm smiling. Thanks. You know, it makes me angry. At that point, I get like this. You know, it's like, because it's like, what is it about this that you need more of, you know? When asked what he worried about most, Williams had this to say. It's just the idea of losing your mind. When you see that, when you literally see either between, you know, and hopefully that the research will kick in by the time I get, you know, as I get older, is that the idea of that, you know, the mind will go away. When you really want to kind of put in, that's why I think, God, I'm going to keep reading, doing all these things and learning and learning, and then you realize at a certain point, it'll start to, you know, it'll go out the way it came in. Starting in the late 1970s and throughout the 80s, Williams began to reach a wider audience with his stand-up comedy, including three HBO comedy specials, Off the Wall in 78, An Evening with Robin Williams in 82, and Robin Williams Live at the Met in 86. Here's Robin Williams performing his set at the Met in 1986, joking about why he had to give up drinking alcohol. I had to stop drinking alcohol because I used to wake up nude and hood in my car with my keys in my not a good thing. Hi, right, can I help you? No, thanks. It's just flooded. I'll be okay. Beautiful, baby. Beautiful, yeah. Because you're sucked into drinking beer by believing it's a healthy thing. All these beer commercials usually show big men, manly men doing manly things. You've just killed a small animal. It's time for a light beer. Why not have a realistic beer commercial? What's the realistic thing about beer where you go, it's five o'clock in the morning. You've just pissed on a dumpster. It's Miller time. Everything, because you realize the first purpose of alcohol is to make English your second language. <laughs> Eventually, you may be quite fluent. You may be a Nobel Prize physicist. After my maybe nine, ten Heinekens, you're going. <laughs> you're speaking fluent drunkenese, bravo. Next thing you know, you get a couple more beers. You've got a friend in the headlock going, "I love you, little. I love you." That's the kind of love I have for you, baby. Damn it. Ah, on you work your way beyond beer. You go beyond beer, you start into wine. For the very elegant people, people, a lot of people who are very elegant are in Montauk going, damn it, I wish I could have been there, but no, I'm not. <laughs> Some people who have, you know, I don't know whether they have the red wine with the fish or the chicken. What's the matter? They're dead. <laughs> the chicken's not going to reach up from the plate and go, the red wine. It's <laughs> <laughs> over with. No, you know what I'm saying? I'm talking about Mad Dog 2020. Mm. You know, the very elegant wine, the type of wine with a lovely screw top, a bottle of which after you can actually see vapor trails as people pass you. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> You've gone too far, and you must pay your dues. This is why I had to give up alcohol, because you have to pay the next day. Pay, dear Lord, please don't hurt me now. Here you are lying in bed, and you feel like the scene from the movie The Fly going, The entire room is spinning like a roulette wheel. Place your bets. Place your bets. <laughs> and there's the old toilet in the corner going, talk to me. <laughs> and there you had it. Robin Williams transforming his own personal pain, connecting it to all of us who have had too much to drink on one night or who know or are one of those people who has too much to drink a whole lot of nights. 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Robin Williams. And when we come back, the movies. Because my goodness, what a catalog. This guy never stopped working, by the way. When we were looking up his experience, his, his portfolio, oh my goodness. Robin Williams died on this day in history, 2014, and we are celebrating his life. More after these messages. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio I pull you a little closer You say no You say you don't like it I say you're a wire This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and that's Robin Williams playing Elmer Fudd doing his rendition of Bruce Springsteen's Fire. (laughs) And only Robin Williams could come up with that. Here's Robin Williams' first appearance on The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. And it's so wacky that Robin has to calm himself down and drink from Johnny's mug in 1981. This is a Robin Williams' first appearance on the, um, on the Tonight Show. Um, he doesn't do many outside appearances. I think I saw him about three years ago. I think he was on uh, with Dick Cavett one night. As you know, he's the star, uh, star of the very successful Mork and Mindy show, which is uh, beginning its uh, fourth season on the air. I begin this Thursday. And he's going to be seen a new film late next spring called The World According to Garth. Did you ever read that book? I read that book. Interesting, yes. funny book. Would you welcome Robin Williams? People always think reformers don't get nervous. Not at all, really. No. I don't. Oh, God. <laughs> not really. Not at all. Not, really. not me. No way. Is there some reason you don't do this? Is it the fact that you get nervous? Do you Very much many so. Shows? I, I suffer from severe dyslexia, too. Oh. I was the only child in my block on Halloween to go trick or trout. <laughs> here, go, oh, look, here comes that young Williams boy again. Better get some fish. <laughs> here you go. Say hi to your mom and dad. <laughs> Hope they find you. Oh, where, where is home for you? Or did you come from a home? Yeah. I mean, they said all the people at the institution, Tommy. If you haven't taken your medication yet, it's going to be fine. <laughs> They're back at 12. Back at 12, yeah. No. How are you, Mr. Williams? I'm real fine. I'm... <laughs> Look at this thing. Look, Flipper. <laughs> Right now, there's a sound man going, What are you doing? Oh, God. I better Wait. relax, relax, relax. It's okay, I'm on TV. Just... You're a nice man. You won't hurt me. No, no. No, no. <laughs> All right, let me just one sip. One sip. Okay, thank you. Don't be afraid. It's not, not... I, the sores went away. <laughs> the simplex two is it? Yeah. One. One or a two. A real man can stand up to herpes. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Robin Williams at his best. And not many people made Johnny Carson cackle. And then came the movies. You heard about The World According to Garp, and what a terrific piece of work by Robin Williams. His first big break in the movies came from his starring role in director Barry Levinson's Good Morning Vietnam in 1987, which earned Williams a nomination 
for the Academy Award for Best Actor. The film takes place in 1965 during the war, with Williams playing the role of a radio shock jock who keeps the troops entertained with comedy and sarcasm. Williams was allowed to play the role without a script, improvising most of his lines. Over the microphone, he created voice impressions of people, including Walter Cronkite, Gomer Pyle, Elvis Presley, Mr. Ed, and Richard Nixon. Just let the cameras roll, said producer Mark Johnson, and Williams, quote, managed to create something new for every single take. Here's some of the best from that film. Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Is that me or does that sound like an Elvis Presley movie? Viva Da Nang. Oh, Viva Da Nang. Da Nang me, Da Nang me. Why don't they get a rope and hang me? Hey, is this a little too early for being that loud? Hey, too late. It's 0600. What's the O stand for? Oh, my God, it's early. Speaking of early, how about that Cro-Magnon, Marty Drywitz? Thank you, Marty, for silky smooth sound. Make me sound like Peggy Lee. AFBN, rocking you from the Delta to the DMZ. AFBN, better than AFVD, which means you have to get a quick shot. We're moving on right now. Hi, what's your name? Bang, Bob Fibber! Bob, what do you do? I'm in artillery! Thank you, Bob. Can we play anything for you? Anything! Just play it loud, okay? <laughs> Williams' roles in comedy and dramatic films garnered him an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role as a psychologist in Goodwill Hunting as well as two previous Academy Award nominations for playing an English teacher in the Dead Poets Society and, again, the aforementioned Good Morning Vietnam. Other roles Williams had in acclaimed dramatic films include Moscow on the Hudson, Awakenings, What Dreams May Come True, and in the year 2002, my goodness, what a year, Insomnia and One Hour Photo, where Robin Williams did the almost impossible, become the bad guy as a comic. And I can't name another world-renowned comic who became the bad guy in a couple of great movies and was convincing. And in Insomnia, he acts up against Al Pacino. Terrific movie. And Terry Gilliam, who co-founded Monty Python and directed Williams in two of his films, put him front and center in The Fisher King and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And that was in 1998, the latter. And noted in 1992 that Williams had the ability to go from manic to mad to tender to vulnerable, adding that to him, Williams was the most unique mind on the planet. And in this scene from Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Robin Williams plays an uncredited role of King of the Moon, who has a head that detaches from his body. When the King of the Moon's body dies, the head rejoices at the fact that he is finally free of the body, only to sneeze and be blown out into space. I'm free. I'm free at last. The body is dead. The body is dead. Long live the head. It's finished. Finito. <laughs> Bye, body. <laughs> I shall prove a head does not need a body to survive. I am omnipotent. <laughs> yes. Oh. oh, no. I got an itch. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, oh no. 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 <laughs> And then, well, came the news, and no one was ready for it. Here's what the world heard. This is Fox News Alert. Actor Robin Williams found dead in California. Let's go to Fox's Trace Gallagher for the very latest. Trace? 
Yeah, Greta, we're just getting information crossing right now. Robin Williams apparently was found this morning in Tiburon, California. That's his hometown. Uh, the 911 call came in around 11.55, just before noon, West Coast time, and apparently there was a male who was unconscious. Now, the Sheriff's Department says it appears the cause of death may have been asphyxiation. Of course, an autopsy has not been done yet. We are uh, apparently just now getting a statement from the family, and the statement from the family does not confirm this was a possible suicide, Greta, but they do go in and say that he has been suffering severe depression in recent weeks. And there you had it. That was August 11th, and I think it shocked the nation. And as we later learned from ensuing reports, uh, he had committed suicide, and in a really garish way, he had hung himself. And so sad. And having experienced suicide in my own family once, uh, and I wish this upon nobody hearing that news from somebody with a lot of life in them, uh, it takes not only the breath out of you, it takes the life out of you. It's almost, it's almost inexplicable. In the initial report that the Marin County Sheriff Office Deputy Coroner stated Williams had hanged himself with a belt and died of asphyxiation. The final autopsy report released in November 2014 affirmed that Williams had committed suicide, as initially described. Neither alcohol nor illegal drugs were involved. The report also noted that Williams had been suffering a, quote, recent increase in paranoia. An examination of his brain tissue revealed the presence of a diffuse Lewy body dementia, which may have been misdiagnosed as Parkinson's disease. His body was cremated and his ashes were scattered in San Francisco Bay on August 12th. Jack is a 1996 American comedy film starring Robin Williams and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Williams plays the role of Jack Powell, a boy who ages four times faster than normal as a result of Werner syndrome. In the movie, Williams' character delivers a speech where he urges people to make life spectacular. You know, as we come to the end of this phase of our life, we find ourselves trying to remember the good times and trying to forget the bad times. And we find ourselves thinking about the future. We start to worry, thinking, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be in 10 years? But I say to you, hey, look at me. Please. Don't worry so much. Because in the end, none of us have very long on this earth. Life is fleeting. And if you're ever distressed, cast your eyes to the summer sky when the stars are strung across the velvety night. And when a shooting star streaks through the blackness, turning night into day, make a wish. Think of me. And make your life spectacular. I know I did. Oh, he did. 
And earlier he had said, what am I going to do? And I know a lot of us were thinking, what are we going to do? Because there was no one who was going to replace Robin Williams. What a talent. What a tragedy. And we are here to celebrate that life. Robin Williams died this day in history on 2014. is our American stories and no matter how many times we've heard the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey teams still all too amazing to believe heroics at Lake Placid in 1980 we want to hear it all over again this adventure seems even more unlikely now than it felt decades ago whether this is your first or most recent time hearing the story and we're playing it again today because on this day in history Herb Brooks Coach Herb Brooks died. It was more than a hockey game. It was us against them. It was freedom versus communism. Nobody gave us a hope in Halloween. It was a sliver of the Cold War. Played out on a sheet of ice. Here you have a bunch of fresh-faced college kids taking on the big bad Soviet bear in the United States in the Olympics the confluence of events was so extraordinary it can never happen again nobody paid attention to what Americans said in the world anymore our hostages had been taken and we couldn't get them back the Red Army went into Afghanistan we couldn't get them out It might have been the all-time low point for American public self-esteem. Who knew that these kids would become the vehicle for making people feel excited and proud again to wave a flag? It was a miracle. David slew Goliath. It was the greatest sports moment of the 20th century. No one could know how important one game could possibly be to a nation that seemed to be losing its way. Certainly not in 1979, when a weary America heard from its embattled leader, who told us we were a nation in crisis. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. President Carter was seen as a an expression of the American self-doubt and lack of self-confidence of the mid-70s. Here's Vice President under Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale. 
Our public support was eroding rapidly. You could feel it when you're out with people, when you're giving speeches, when you're shaking hands. America, I think, had begun to wonder whether we'd lost our edge. In the 20 years since winning the gold medal at the 1960 Olympics, American teams had become increasingly unable to compete with the dominant Europeans, especially the Soviet Union, whose players were amateurs in name only. The goal was to avoid being embarrassed at home. So in July of 1979, the best amateur players in the country were invited to try out for the 1980 Olympic team. They invited us all to Colorado Springs and they divided us up into four teams. Basically, Eastern guys, Michigan guys, Minnesota guys, and an at-large team. Over the course of 10 days in Colorado Springs, those four teams played a round robin. It was a nerve-wracking situation. It was a, a pressure-packed situation. And as that tournament went on, it was being evaluated by Herb Brooks. Minnesota native Herb Brooks never went to charm school. He was abrasive and intense. He was also the best college hockey coach in the country at the University of Minnesota. People were a little afraid of him. He had always been considered kind of an outsider, had his own way of thinking, his own way of doing things. And he already had a history with the Olympic team. As a University of Minnesota player, Brooks thought he had made the team in 1960. He was even in the team picture. But at the last minute, Coach Jack Riley added a new player to the roster, and someone had to go. The someone was Herb Brooks, cut just one day before the team left for the games. A crushed Herb Brooks immediately called his father to vent. So I called and said, Dad, this whole thing is bullshit. Eastern coach halls, fixed all politics. And I went through the whole thing. And finally, my father said, you're done. I said, yeah. I said, well, I keep your bleeping. Keys. Keep your mouth shut. I heard enough of that. You get back and thank the coach. Get your ass in the locker room. Wish your teammates well. And get your ass home. That was my father. God rest his soul. I said, yes, sir. So I came home. Watching this thing unfold, the Americans got hot. And they won our country's first gold medal. I'm watching this thing on TV. My father looked over at me. He says, looks like the coach cut the right guy, didn't he? Just bang. That left unfinished business in Herb Brooks's life. He had something to prove. He was on a mission. A mission to shake American hockey out of its slumber. First, Brooks had to trim the roster from 80 to 26. The tough part will be getting it down to 20 before the opening ceremonies. Behind the Iron Curtain, the Soviets were the best hockey team in the world, perhaps the strongest ever assembled, and everybody knew it. Vladislav Tridiak grew up outside Moscow and became immersed in the Soviets' communist sports machine at a young age. He developed into perhaps the greatest goaltender to ever play and starred on the Soviet national team for over 15 years. Vladislav Tretiak. You score on Tretiak, keep the puck. It doesn't happen often. By 1980, Boris Mikhailov was already a 10-year veteran of the Soviet national team and the most recognizable face in international hockey. Here's Boris Mikhailov. Sport was tied with politics, and any victory had big political undertones, especially during the Olympic Games, when the general secretary and everybody else was worried about how we would represent our country. Our task was only to place first. They were government-sponsored magicians on ice. The goal was to win for the motherland 
and to show the world that Karl Marx had it right. They played hockey the way we played basketball, with the same kind of control of the puck, the same kind of intricate offensive patterns, and of course the presence and goal of Tretiak. How could you beat him? Back in the U.S., Herb Brooks had been contemplating that same question for years. After all, how many times does one have to get hit with the same hammer and sickle before they learn? We, uh, we also need to change the way we play the game. North American hockey had forever been a very linear, dump-and-chase style of hockey, unlike the Soviets and Europeans, who played an artistic, very free-flowing system built on finesse, speed, conditioning, and overlapping movements. Most of all, team chemistry. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. And when we come back, the miracle on the ice in 1980, the 1980 Olympic Games when we continue. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's 1980 performance. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. I tried to develop a team that would throw their game right back at us. But first, Brooks would have to get his players to start thinking as a team, which wouldn't be easy. How's it looking? A lot of guys from Minnesota and Boston. Let's go! The rivalry between the University of Minnesota and Boston University was one of the fiercest in all of college hockey. Well, how about it, boys? Look like hockey to you? You want to settle old scores, you're on the wrong team. As much as I was a Boston hockey player and I had pride in my roots as a Boston hockey player, I had an enemy, and my enemy was the University of Minnesota. And the Boston guys, you know, we thought we were pretty savvy, and, you know, there were guys that didn't lock their doors or left their wallets out in plain sight. We thought, you know, these guys are a bunch of hicks from the cow pastures. I wanted to blur the, the boundaries of our country, build a we and an us and ourselves as opposed to an I, me, myself. Our spirit was going to be a big asset. And you can't have that type of thing if you have pockets of individuals and that there's not those team-building exercises throughout the year. To fill the most important role, Brooks picked 22-year-old Boston University goaltender Jim Craig, the man who would backstop history. You know, people I speak to say Craig's game has been off since his mom died. <laughs> they were seeing when his game's on. Craig was recovering from the recent death of his mother, Margaret, to cancer. Starting in August of 79, Brooks began employing his main team-building exercise, beginning a rugged six-month pre-Olympic training program with a strategy. You know, maybe if they hit him, they won't have time to hit each other. To bond them as a team, his players needed one common enemy. I'll be your coach. Him. I won't be your friend if you need one of those. I remember when he told us, I'll be a coach, but I won't be a friend. And I'm like, boy, this is going to be a long year. He quoted in the paper that I had a million dollar set of legs and a 10 cent fart for a brain. He could give you that glare and that look, and it's like, oh my God, what did I do wrong now? I can honestly say that uh, there was no sense of regionalism on that team. There was a sense of Herbieism. Brooks didn't just put up a wall between himself and the team. He threw in a moat and alligators too. 
I need you to stick tight with these kids. One of the first things Herb told his assistant coach, Craig Patrick, was, I'm going to be tough on them, and you are going to have to be the one who keeps everyone together. Okay. It was an elaborate and flawlessly constructed game of good cop, bad cop. He would later call it his loneliest year in hockey. Here's Coach Brooks. A lot of these guys being college All-Americans, they were never pushed like that, never pulled. And I wasn't trying to put greatness into anybody. I was trying to pull it out, pull it out way up here. And I don't like coaches that try to put it in because they think they've got all the answers. But you got to believe in them, uh, have high standards uh, of them, and pull it out. And my favorite coach, John Wooden right here, I think he would concur with that. As September arrived, it was time to start playing against future Olympic competition. So Brooks took the team to Europe for a series of exhibition games. Before a game against Norway, a team they would have to face at the Olympics, he issued a challenge. I said, guys, we're going to have to play the Norwegians in qualifications. So we do it tonight. We send a message right now. But playing flat and uninspired hockey, the U.S. could only muster a 3-3 tie against a team they should have trounced. Brooks was furious. You guys don't want to work during the game? No problem, we'll work now. Goal line. He's standing there with his suit on, and he makes us all get behind the net, and on the goal line, he starts blowing his whistle. And we did what are called herbies, which are blue line back, red line back, far blue line back, all the way down and back. Think you can win on talent alone? Gentlemen, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. Again. Two or three of those would be tiring. Blue line back, red line back, blue line back, down and back. 10 or 12 of them would be excessive. You better think about something else, each and every one of you. When you pull on that jersey, you represent yourself and your teammates. And a name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. Get that through your head. Again. And we did them for about 45 minutes to an hour. The rink attendant turned the lights off on us, and we still skated in the dark. In the dark, he's screaming at us. Booming voice around this empty arena. How about it, Silky? You gonna be the first one to quit on me? It was pretty intense. The message went out right then. They're not gonna play the game like that and disgrace their abilities or our collective efforts. that moment probably had more to do with us gelling as a team, feeling like we were a group, a family. We looked at each other and said, you know, basically he can do anything he wants to us. He's not going to break us. The following night, the teams played again. The United States won 9-0. to zero. But there were still six cuts to be made, and Brooks was making it clear that no one was safe. Not even the team captain. You better start putting the puck in the net, Rizzo, or you're not going anywhere. Here's team captain Mike Arruzzioni. Two weeks before the Olympic Games, he calls me and he's going to cut me from the team. You're not good enough. You shouldn't be here. I never should have taken you. I'm going to send you back. Don't think I won't do it. And I'm thinking, he might just do this. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow. The word got down that Arruzzioni's job was in jeopardy. So everyone said, if he'll cut the captain, where do I stand? Which is exactly what Brooks wanted. Timmy! What's he doing here? Hey, you guys know he's Turning the screws even tighter, he brought in new players for tryouts just weeks before the Olympics, provoking the same fear in his players 
that Brooks himself experienced in 1960 when he was cut from the Olympic team at the last minute. But this was a new generation of player, and they'd had enough. Assistant coach Craig Patrick approached Brooks on the team bus. Herb, some of the boys want to have a word. Here's defenseman Jack O'Callaghan. And I said, you know, Herb, I don't think you should do it. I think it's wrong. We're going to Lake Placid in a week. I mean, stop it. Get rid of these guys and let us get serious about this. And I was looking for that moment where their cohesiveness and strength of association was such a strong bond. And then I would just cut the cord. And that was the moment. Brooks sent the late additions back home. He trimmed the roster to 20 and kept his captain. Herb never did anything on a whim. He planned. And I think he felt that maybe this was the last test to see how close these players really are. Twelve Olympic team members were from Minnesota, four were from Boston, and two apiece were from Wisconsin and Michigan. Yeah. But just days before the Olympics, the Americans had one more test to take. Well, I still don't know why you scheduled this, Herb, but get your guys to New York. They've got a game to play. On February 9th, 1980, at Madison Square Garden in New York City, they skated onto the ice to play an exhibition game just three days before the start of the Olympics. But to their opponents on this night, it wasn't just an exhibition. The Soviets had just recently embarrassed the NHL All-Stars, the best of the best, defeating them six to nothing. But before the game, Brooks told his team to go out and have fun have fun? Brooks himself later described the Garden game as a ploy. He said, what could possibly be gained by playing the Soviets tough and waking them up? We got crushed and we thought, these guys are in another world. They just kicked us around that rink. The goals they scored were, you could have filmed them, they were so beautiful. They were like robots. When they scored a goal, they never smiled. I don't think I ever saw them smile. We were about ready to stand up and applaud him. We didn't see anything like that before. No guys hitting elbow. Did you see that goal? Did you see his move? It's like, we were spectators. I looked up at the scoreboard. It said 10 to 3. It might as well have said 20 to nothing. 10-3 made it sound closer than it was. It was no contest. There couldn't have been a greater low point, given the preparation and the, and the work that we had put in. It was very demoralizing. As each team left New York City and headed five and a half hours north to Lake Placid, their future seemed clear. Here's ABC's 1980 Olympic hockey announcer, Al Michaels. Anybody who left Madison Square Garden that day thought to themselves, the Soviets will win every game in the Olympics, take home the gold medal, and never be challenged. And the U.S., all you knew is that when it came time to face the Big Bear, they had no chance. As discouraging as the loss to the Soviets was, it was not something on the minds of Americans. Throughout 1979, as the hockey team was preparing to compete in the Olympics, Americans at large were also competing with the harsh realities of everyday life. Here again is Michael Ruzioni. Look at the economy. Look how much money we're paying for gas. Inflation was absolutely ridiculous. People just didn't feel good about the United States. A lot of people wondered where we were headed. And more on this great story from Lake Placid, New York, 1980, our Olympic hockey team. The story continues after these messages. 
This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's miracle on ice in Lake Placid in 1980. And then, in November, just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse... This is NBC Nightly News. They did. With Jessica Savage. Good evening. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy and took dozens of American hostages. On November 4th, which was a really rainy day, a hundred or so Iranian students climbed over the walls of the U.S. embassy, yelling Magbar America, death to America. In a few seconds, uh, the door was knocked down and Iranians with automatic weapons uh, stood right in front of me and uh, held them against my head. This morning, for the first time... Barry Rosen and 51 other Americans would be held hostage in Iran for the next 444 days. They would come into our cells and hold us up against the wall and use an automatic weapon and count from 10 to 1 just to scare us. Iran's Ayatollah taunted and mocked President Jimmy Carter. Carter tries to frighten us on the economic front. He does not have the military courage to attack us. It was a constant nightly embarrassment to all Americans to see our influence in the world seemingly ebbing away. Every night on the evening news they'd burn an American flag for us. We were not feeling very good about ourselves. In December, it would get even worse. Day 54 in Iran, and while there has been no significant change in the hostage situation, there has been a major development in the country next door to Iran, Afghanistan. During the last three days, more than 5,000 Soviet combat troops have been airlifted into Kabul. Up to another 50,000 Soviet troops have massed along Afghanistan's northern border. As one administration official said privately, this is the grossest piece of international behavior in some time period after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was uh, one of the tensest periods of the entire Cold War. It was always a potentially dangerous situation that if it ever had gotten out of control would have meant the end of the world as we knew it. It's very important for the world to realize how serious a threat the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is. The Cold War was getting colder by the day and with the Soviets on American soil they were encouraged to see the American press blaming America for the world's woes. Newspapers were full of articles like blaming Americans for everything. So an attitude for the entire Olympic team, let's show them who we are. Let's show them who are the greatest. Let's show them who are the strongest. And let's show them on their soil. The Winter Olympics began on February 12, 1980. No one was expecting a showdown between the Americans and the Soviets. Not even the team captain. Here again is Mike Ruzioni. I know you guys are really facing a Herculean task here. Uh, it's like sending you into the lion's cage. Do you feel like that? Uh, yes, we do. You know, you got to be realistic about things. We're, we're a young team. We're the youngest Olympic hockey team ever. If you had to pick us, I think it would probably be picked fifth. The Soviets blew out their first two opponents with a combined score of 33 to 4. The seventh seeded Americans opened against the heavily favored Sweden and trailed 2 to 1 late in the final third period. Here again is Al Michaels. I remember the U.S. had several opportunities to tie the game, and you just got the feeling, and of course, as the clock ticks down and now you're under a minute, 
Well, it's it's not to be. Jimmy, come on now! And Brooks is pulling goalie Jim Craig for an extra skater to try to go, tie it up. With only 41 seconds to go, Brooks pulled goalie Jim Craig, which allowed him to put an extra skater on the ice. But in return, it also left the American net empty. It was a desperate move for a desperate team. Fighting for control of the puck with 29 seconds to play. Baker on it, buddy! Oh, Baker! He was just trying to get it on net. And I couldn't believe it when it went in, you know. Look at that scene on the ice! You can always wonder if Philly doesn't score, what happens to the hockey team? Well, Philly did score. That was the biggest goal of the Olympics because if the Americans lose that game, they're virtually out of contention before the Olympic Games start. Two days later, the Americans faced Czechoslovakia, underdogs again, in a game they had to win. Many people said that the Czechs were considered the second best team in the world and the only team that had a chance to beat the Soviets. Well, we pretty much dominated the Czechs. Then late in the third period, as the Americans were skating to a 7-3 Valentine's Day massacre victory against the second best team in the world, Mark Johnson, the team's star player, was knocked to the ice from a cheap shot by a Czech player. As Johnson lay in the middle of the ice, Americans watching on television were introduced to Herb Brooks, up close and personal. I'm going to take this stick and I'm going to stuff it down your throat. People were ready to hear that kind of thing. He would not have sat back and let the Ayatollah stomp all over the U.S. while holding a bunch of hostages. I think that was one of the moments where a lot of people in this country said, hey, they've got a pretty good little story taking place here. We have these fresh-faced kids, got to keep an eye on these guys. And look at this coach. I mean, he's right there, backing his players. So everybody's starting to look ahead to this prospective matchup against the Soviets. But before that, you have three other games. Norway figured to be the easiest of the games, and it was. There is Pavlich who gets it back to Silk, who scores! Davy Silk from Mark Pavlich. Then you had Romania. Preston, he scores! And they won that game. Germany presented a little bit of a problem, though, on, on Wednesday night, the last game prior to going into the medal round. Germany leads 2-0. So wait a second, what's going on here? You, you don't want this bump in the road. You don't want it now. And then the U.S. is able to come from behind and beat Germany. So they did all of the things they had to do. But then, of course, you had the specter of the, the Soviets just looming there. Seemingly no one, certainly not a bunch of college kids, could stop them from winning the gold medal. Herb Brooks, after all, wasn't coaching a dream team. He was coaching a team full of dreamers. There's a big difference. Today, the concept of amateurs in the Olympics is as obsolete as eight-track cassettes. The expression dream team has become part of the five-ring lexicon. Herb Brooks would later see the dream team as ironic, because when you have dream teams, 
you seldom get to dream. But this was a game of striking contrasts. It was experience versus youth, men versus boys, champions versus upstarts, communism versus capitalism, all on a sheet of ice in the Adirondack Mountains. After studying the Soviets for years, Herb Brooks could sense their overconfidence and told his team to take advantage of it. I kept whetting their appetites. Someone will beat those guys. Someone's going to beat those guys. I don't like how they're playing. They think they're better than they are. Brooks also thought his team was giving too much respect to the Soviets. So he began chipping away at their mystique by poking fun at their leader, one of the top players in the world, who just happened to look a lot like a famous comedian. Boris Mikhailov was as close to, I mean, the hockey chief of the world as there was. And Herbie starts teasing the guy all week. Look at that guy's nose. God, look at that guy's face. Looks like Stan Laurel. And he's insulting the guy. Ha ha ha. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. Piece of cake, guys. And when we come back, our final segment, The Miracle in Lake Placid in 1980. The U.S. Olympic hockey team, their story continues here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and we continue with our final segment in this hour-long celebration of the United States Olympic hockey team's remarkable performance in Lake Placid in 1980. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. To relax them, to keep them focused, and also plan and say, hey, someone's going to beat those son of a guns. Then, on Friday, February 22nd, the Cold War was put on ice. The 13th Winter Olympic Games. The excitement, the tension building, the Olympic Center filling to capacity. In the locker room before the game, Herb Brooks gave the speech of his life. You were born to be hockey players. He told us we were born to be a player. You were meant we were meant to be, be here. here. This moment Tonight. was ours. This is your time. And he told that story about going up and spitting in the eye of the tiger. If this is our time, this it's not their time. This is your time. Screw them, Stan Laurel, all those Russians. Now go out there and take it. It's our turn. And I remember a telegram we got from a lady in Texas. And all the telegram said was, beat those commie You realized that the USA on the front of your sweater meant that you were playing One, for your two, country. Three. USA! Here we go as the game is underway. The Soviet Union in red and the United States in I remember for the first five or six minutes, feeling as though I couldn't feel my feet on the ice. The Soviets struck first. And it was deflected in. And the Soviet Union leads one to nothing at the 9-12 mark of the first period. The Russians scored first, and you winced and thought, here it comes. But the U.S. team took that blow. Craig made some key saves. And then Buzzy Schneider came down the left wing. up ahead to Schneider. Schneider! 
The tying goal failed to unnerve the Soviets. They quickly scored again, and it looked like the first period would end with them leading 2-1. to one. But with just seconds remaining, the methodical team that almost never made mistakes made the worst kind, a mental error, and it changed the course of the game. David Christian has the puck. It's about five seconds left to go in the period. I start to skate to the bench thinking the period's over. I've never seen Mark Johnson go scooting up. Like, he just didn't stop playing. He was still playing. The Russians had stopped. And made it one to nothing. Long shot, the easy save by Trediak, but Johnson is there! The Soviets aimed to fix that mistake in the second period, quickly scoring the go-ahead goal. They dominated the action, outshooting the Americans 11-2 in the second period. Only Jim Craig's brilliance and goal prevented the game from becoming a blowout. But the Americans had never come from behind the best team in the world, and the Soviets always dominated the third and final period. It looked as if this night would be no different. That is, until lightning struck. Just 81 seconds later, the team's captain, whose name in Italian means eruption, triggered one. That's when the building went crazy. I mean, that's when sound had feel. I mean, that was like an earthquake. Now we've got Bedlam. Oh, I love Brooks' reaction. Here it is again. The atmosphere in that arena was incredible. The, the feeling, the sense that they could do this, that they could actually pull it off. That goal coming at the 10-minute mark, exactly halfway through the period. When I sat on, I looked up and I went, 10 minutes. Long time against these guys. They could score in 10 minutes what would take us 60 minutes to score. And I knew that. Too much time, too much time. You can't hold them off this long. It was just a constant clock watch, shift by shift, shift by shift. Eight and a half minutes to play. The Americans are now leading. Four and three. It went on forever. I mean, time just stood still. Five and a half minutes to play. 353 remaining in the game. 225, 224, 223 remaining. It kept building and building, and the clock kept winding down. It just got louder and louder. 55 seconds, but Mikhailov has the puck. 28 seconds, the crowd going insane. Carlamov. McClanahan is there, the puck is still loose. 11 seconds, you've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! The entire U.S. bench cleared. Everyone except Coach Brooks. After throwing both arms overhead and doing a tiny pirouette and punching the air with an emphatic left fist, he walked straight off the bench, turned right into the runway, got patted on the back by weepy state troopers, and went back into locker room five. Herb Brooks locked himself inside an orange toilet stall and cried. Once the team made it into the locker room, they broke into a spontaneous chorus of God Bless America, filling in the words they couldn't remember with hums and whistles. In Lake Placid and all over the United States, the victory triggered an outpouring of national emotion never before provoked by a sporting event. On the Iron Range in Minnesota, people ran outside and hollered and shot off guns. In the Mediterranean Sea, the USS Nimitz 
one of the world's largest supercarriers, flashed the score to a Soviet intelligence ship that was nearby. The Soviets would not lose again for five years, and the Americans would not beat them for another 11 years. But the future domination came with no rewind mechanism, no clause that could undo what happened on Friday night, February 22, 1980. It was the 13th anniversary of the film debut of Walt Disney's Cinderella. Maybe it figured. The nation continued celebrating, but for the hockey team, it wasn't over yet. People always forget that the U.S. had to win another game on Sunday. It was still possible. If the Americans did not beat the Finns, that they would not only not win the gold, they wouldn't win any medal at all. And Herb understood this. And we were excited, we were anxious, we couldn't wait to get out and play. And Herb Brooks walked into the locker room, and he looked at us and he said, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your grave. Then he stopped, he walked a couple of steps, turned, looked at us again, and said, you grave. Once again, the Americans would have to come from behind. And we went out there in the third period, and I think we just steamrolled them from the time they opened that door and let us out. They didn't have a chance. Three unanswered goals in the third period gave the U.S. a 4-2 win and the gold medal. The Olympics broke Herb Brooks' heart in 1960 and made him the most celebrated American hockey coach in history two decades later. But on August 11th, 2003, in a single car accident, a little bit of the Lake Placid miracle died with Herbert Paul Brooks on the hot, hard asphalt of Interstate 35 in Forest Lake, Minnesota. As his casket descended down the steps of Assumption Catholic Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, it passed under a curved canopy of hockey sticks raised up by his 1980 gold medal team. Many of those holding sticks were fighting tears and losing the fight. If Herb Brooks' passing reminds us that human beings have a shelf life, it also reminds us that miracles do not. And this miracle didn't happen on accident. I see Neil Broughton skating on a flooded rink in Roseau, Minnesota, that his father got up at 2 a.m. to make in 25 degree below zero weather. I see John Harrington's late father Charles skipping overtime at work to watch his kids' games, because his overtime would always be there, but the games would not. And then see him years later listening to John skate against the Russians from the cab of his locomotive. I envision Margaret Craig running her goaltender son and all her other kids all over southeastern Massachusetts, a devotion that was absolutely unstinting until her cigarette habit caught up to her and cancer arrived. Behind every player, there are stories of love and sacrifice and struggle. Life is hard, and Olympic gold medals provide no exemption. You push on, do your best, and if you are really brave, you dream big. Doubts and fears be damned. This is the stuff that miracles are made of, and the proof was there to see on February 22nd, 1980. And great job on that as always, Greg. And I'll never forget that day. I don't, if you were around, you didn't either. 
you knew where you were. There are some events where you just remember where you were. And I was at Paul Biatini's house, co-captain of my team. One of my dearest friends died in the World Trade Center visiting an insurance company on the 100th floor. And what a day that was. The celebration everywhere. And we weren't hockey fans. There had to be 35 to 40 of us at the Biatini's. We all got called in through the quarters. We were calling each other's houses. And then we all got together for that final period. Not a quarter. Clearly, I'm not a hockey fan. But in the third period, everybody gathered at the Biatini's for the final round. This is Lee Habib. A great hockey story. The greatest hockey story here on Our American Stories. The 1980 Dream Team. The real Dream Team. The U.S. Olympic Hockey Team.